0: The planet's puffin masters almost surely have a plan. There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man. And until you've thoroughly tested every last course, just in view, I find the more you think you know, the less you really do. That's true, Doctor S.
1: The power of Christ compels you people from the Sunshine State. I'm Greg Carlwood. And if you think about current events today in the labyrinth of lies and surplus of state sponsored misdirections that plague nearly any topic, one must assume that dishonesty is not a new trait of the big machine, but part of its foundational ethos, because knowledge is power. And it's quite obvious that nobody at the top wants to share that power. And it seems that the further you go back, the fewer hands held that power, the tighter their grip was on streams of information, and the harder it was to find a steady current of truth. Those who tried to get the word out were more easily dispatched, their works more easily destroyed, and their followers more easily disbanded. So what does that say about centuries of shaky foundational facts that shape our very understanding of the human story, our historical timeline, and the place we find ourselves today? Spoiler alert, it's not great. But fear not, dear listeners, as today marks the return of the man they call Analog. A man who dedicates much of his time to combing the old newspaper archives of early America, finding the rare instances of uncensored anomalous oddities, and stringing them together to try and reconstruct a more honest and accurate view of the times that came before Advanced cultures that have been erased from the record, suppressed technologies, and both men and beasts of exceptional size that seem to have been much more common than any academic historian today would admit. Since we last did the dance in February, he has launched a new YouTube channel called The Archivist with Analog, where he has a series working his way state by state through these very telling articles and mysteries, as well as a series on radium and a cornucopia of head-scratching videos that lay out some pretty incredible stuff. Bound to be a good time. Let's get it going. The anomalous article hunter, lost civilization seeker, and newspaper archivist extraordinaire analog. Welcome back, man.
2: Thanks, Greg. Another phenomenal intro. I appreciate it.
1: (laughs) I try. And it's a pleasure to do this again. I'm pretty used to the general level of feedback an episode might get, but the one we did certainly seemed to get a bigger response than usual. I think we're all in agreement that these old newspaper articles about underground cities and buried communities and giants and radium and all these other provocative things are exciting to explore. But what about you? Did it seem like a fair amount of good feedback came from our last conversation?
2: Yeah. I mean, it was pretty unbelievable, honestly. And obviously, you know, I kind of expected a lot more comments than I'm used to getting, but it was. Pretty crazy. In fact, I still get at least one a day, if not more. So, yeah, I couldn't be happier. Obviously, you know, I've been listening for years and just feel really blessed to be on the show, but it's just amazing how many people reached out.
1: Right on, right on. I love to hear that. And I like to sometimes ask just for the audience's sake because I tend to tell them to go and thank the guests because it just helps everything. And it's the reason why guests come here. And so, When there's a chance for them to hear that they were actually heard, it's kind of nice. But I would also say that one of the only negative things that people said to me was that these old newspaper articles from the 1800s-ish to early 1900s are unreliable and we're extrapolating too much from articles that were maybe written as fiction or fantasy just to sell papers. Maybe the journalistic standards were a little loose, though they certainly seem pretty loose today. Mm -hmm. But just to address that, when you find articles of giants from papers in almost every major city or reports of early settlers exploring huge underground chambers that they stumble into all across the country, these things aren't really to be thought about in isolation, but they build on each other. And with enough work, you can start to reconstruct a picture of the pre-colonial past. It's the consistency across the board that helps make them more credible, wouldn't you say?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I understand people's, you know, opinions on that. But like with anything, any author or, you know, person that puts out material, if you're just treading into their material for the first time, it can be overwhelming. But I've been doing this for years and, you know, with thousands of articles thousands and thousands of articles now and hundreds of giants at this point it's it's not yellow journalism or anything like that for me and yeah you have to have kind of a full spectrum analysis with a lot of this material for it to make sense but at this point for me it's like i said it's undeniable and i think you know i've shared enough articles with you over the years You know, the first one or two or three can seem crazy, and you're like, there's no way, but you get hundreds deep, you build a whole new picture.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I agree. And these older newspapers, there wasn't so much coordination. They weren't so centralized. So they just had a way of writing. They wrote about things that were being dug up. And the curious thing is that all that stuff went away. It seems like the way the system really maintains control is. Not necessarily to catch every single thing that gets out, but just to push things to the side. And over time, a mainstream narrative forms and all that other stuff is on the cutting room floor. And that's what you're bringing back to put back into the human story to say, hey, look at all of this stuff. It's not just one or two things. Last time we probably went through 20 different articles. If even a fraction of them are true, like the old UFO cliche, then we got something here. So Uh, I think that's what people are excited about, and that's why I loved it, and I'm sure that's why they responded. And when it comes to the broad picture overall, what can you tell us about your best guesses as to this reconstruction? What are some of the major themes that keep popping up throughout that help fill in the big picture?
2: Well, the big one for me is there was something that happened, some event or several events. My best guess is probably late 1700s into the mid-1800s. And that could have been a giant flood. I lean towards a volcanic event of some kind or several. You know, the stories of 1812 align with these theories quite a lot. But from a historical newspaper narrative, it's almost like newspapers west of the Mississippi, didn't even really come online until the 1840s. And, you know, we talked a little bit on the last episode about orphan trains and repopulating cities and stuff like that. And, you know, the 1840s is when that all kicks off. And you're pretty much dealing with, again, following, you know, you mentioned my Anomalous America series. I'm working on episode 11 right now. And the underlying tone of every single one of those, from Alaska to episode 10 in Texas, is we're dealing with the entire American Southwest was buried in at least one, maybe two, maybe three events. And we're dealing with each cultural layer getting more advanced. And humans of all phenotypes living in absolutely monstrous cities. And the, quote, Aboriginals or Indians or Native Americans of those areas are living on top of these buried civilizations to which they have almost no understanding or history of these people.
1: Right. That's an important point because you've stressed this in several videos that it seems like, according to the reports, if you dig down a little bit, you'll find bronze tools and hammers and pottery and bowls and that kind of stuff but if you dig below that you get to some much more advanced stuff which do seem like these huge mega cities with people of every race living there much like today and <laughs> maybe uh maybe we're due for another event but i think that's interesting i've heard you call it a plasma event which of course i like a volcanic event makes sense when you say it's consistent with the stories of 1812. What are you talking about there because it does seem like these newspapers have no problem talking about what they dig up, but none of them really mention how things got buried. Maybe they don't even know. What would you say about that little um that little gap in the story or that little chapter when this event actually happened and those 1812 stories?
2: Yeah, so obviously there wasn't really a culture as we would call it an American culture. Extended into the Southwest, you know, pre 1840, at least that we know of. And so the papers I can find from the 1812s discussing the New Madrid event, they talk about incredible sounds. They talk about electrical events. They talk about volcanoes being created overnight from mountains that had no obvious signs of ever being a volcano. Places in Georgia, the Carolinas, Missouri, magnetic anomalies, and this is all from 1811 through 1812. So I think when I discussed the plasma event, my biggest marker for that would be all the petrifactions. And, you know, nowhere shows that more than the American Southwest, but I've found them in every state and I've covered them now from Alaska all the way to Texas. And The petrified forest, again, talking about civilizations buried on civilizations, the petrified forests are a big marker for that. And they're finding trees that are a thousand feet long, tall, Mm. or larger. And they're all turned into copper, opals, silver. And I've hypothesized, and I think we touched on this a little bit, that the mining industries of today are just organic material, which is kind of understood, but I'm talking on a titanic size scale. I've had petrified animals. I've tried to get petrified animals in every single state and cover them at least once, showing that not only do the petrifactions cover trees, but large, large reptiles, mammals. And radium ties in with this because radium was found in the petrified trees as well. So you have all this organic matter where you, when something's electrified or petrified by, you know, a plasma discharge of some kind, the material can, t- can turn into all these, just about everything in the mineral kingdom. And this extends all the way to the Mississippi, which is where I'm at now, Louisiana.
0: Hmm.
2: So, yeah, plasma and a plasma event, an electrical discharge event, volcanoes, again are directly related to radium as well. I've hypothesized that all volcanism and earthquakes and all of these mechanisms are related to radium. When radium breaks down organic matter underground, it creates a cavity. And these cavities will, through vacuum and other movements, eventually be filled in or break open. And that'll cause you know a huge amount of basically melted Space is filled in in seconds or minutes and creates massive earthquakes and volcanism again is related to radium and this ties in with the for those who heard our second hour story from the underground Rockies and the river that I've hypothesized you know the Gulf Stream is created by an underground river that flows from Canada all the way through the Rocky Mountains into the Gulf and it's heated by volcanic radium action.
1: Hmm.
2: (laughs) That was a long answer. So, yeah,
1: no, that's great. And I did have a little bit to supplement that story we told in the second half. I figured we'd get into it in the second half just for consistency's sake. But what does it really mean for something to be petrified? I mean, I've looked at the petrified forest and they just kind of say fossilized. So your head just kind of thinks, oh, well, this is just even older than other stuff. But there is this little thread in the conspiracy world that gets way, way out there. I know you're on this thread now, but people will talk about the devil's backbone, the giant rock formation, and say that was an ancient tree that is as big as a mountain, basically, like a giant ancient redwood. And you look at it and you could see why someone would think that. But then you start to think, well there's definitely a difference between rock and wood, right? I mean, geologists would know this and tree experts would be able to look at this and say, yeah, not wood. But to help people get over that little stumbling block, talk to us about what petrifaction really is, what it means for something to be petrified and elaborate on this idea that petrified things, something that might be destroyed in a giant plasma event or a sudden blast, actually turn into minerals. How does this factor into mining?
2: Yeah, so that can be hard, again, to wrap your mind around. But another thing I've been touching on in every single one of these state episodes is the idea that the world was tropical and not so long ago. You know, in Alaska, there's tons of evidence of this all over They find tropical coral still in the water not far off the coast. You know, pyramids off the coast of Alaska. They found 21 pyramids off the coast of Alaska. But yeah, the tropical aspect ties in with this. And, you know, they want to stretch these giant creatures, reptiles, and these different ages back millions of years. And that's just absurd because they find human skeletons from California all the way to my next episode in Louisiana, they find human skeletons two, three, four layers deep. And, you know, when these scientists in the 1800s, 1900s are looking at the timelines that are kind of the mainstream timelines and they're finding these anomalies, these human skeletons, they're saying, well, this must be the oldest human in the world because it's, the, you know, if I go by geological standards, this is 500,000 years of layering. And I've hypothesized again that through cave art and again the skeletal records that man was living alongside these giant beasts and alongside giant trees and i think we talked a little bit about the avatar overlay and how the more of these articles i get into and the more i start to like kind of unravel it and piece it together and present it to people the more the avatar movie starts to really ring as true and that Just like studying a tropical climate of today, 90% of all life in the rainforest lives in or around the trees. And I would have hypothesized the same. And that many of these cave structures from these articles and these subterranean caves are the remnants of the veins of ancient trees or the carving out of ancient trees. And petrifaction is really important because there are plenty of examples of petrifaction even today, and some of the stories that stick out to me are linemen, people that work on power lines are around you know very high voltages and high amperage. There are stories where there's an accident of some kind, and the people are exposed to incredibly high amps and volts and that they'll have actual limbs turned to stone, hands and feet so forth hmm. and
1: now now just just to drive this home i mean if a person with some knowledge took that petrified arm and put it under a microscope they couldn't mistake it for rock could they
2: well it'd be more crystallized again i've also hypothesized that the environment in which the event takes place is incredibly important humidity all these things Mm -hmm. water exposure the salinity of the water They all have a different effect, and even different woods. In many of my articles, they talk about how different trees, pines, oaks, they petrify into different materials. And just like the human body, you know, the human body contains gold and silver in small quantities. These giant trees would have contained these in huge quantities. And I can't remember if it was Nevada or New Mexico, but they found a petrified forest that was laid over and the trees were 60 percent copper damn i mean that's insane usually the percentages are much lower but i've had where they're hugely opals or they're finding incredible amounts of gold per ton and yeah this kind of just all correlates again back with some of my articles from texas where they found petrified giants mm-hmm when they were doing the hydraulic mining in California which is you know basically a giant water hose and they're washing entire mountains away they were finding petrified giant skeletons and they were turned into silver and gold and quartz
1: damn so i guess it's more possible than people realize and your overall premise that we used to basically live with the megafauna or that this all happened much more recently you know we like you said we're told about the megafauna the giant ground sloths and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's thrown back hundreds of thousands or millions of years, yet they find mammoths with green food still in their mouths that seem flash frozen. And that's something that might tie in. And to be fair, it isn't your job to completely solve every question in people's minds or fully reconstruct things. You're saying, look, I got these articles. You follow them state by state. There are some strange consistencies. There's petrifaction examples in every state. Yep. Seems like maybe the catalyst is the same. And we've also talked with other guests about carbon 14 dating and how that's completely a flawed premise. Erroneous. I mean, it's flawed for many reasons, but the simplest is just to say, well, what if the carbon environment changes? Because you have to assume that it is the way it is today and then extrapolate out hundreds of thousands of years and go back in huge chunks of tens of thousands of years but if there was a giant change to the environment well that's going to throw off your model your measurement system Mm -hmm. and you know i think that there really might be something to that the more we learn those orphan trains as you say quite crazy but let's get into some details here and i've got to bring up the hoover dam i can't believe we're already 30 minutes into this thing everyone knows the hoover dam was built on the Colorado River, and by damming it up, it created Lake Mead. But what gets left out of the story is that apparently the creation of Lake Mead covered up the ruins of one of these huge cities that was there in the desert. You have covered a really great article from 1936 that talked about this, but what can you tell us about the creation of the Hoover Dam in this maybe um, lesser-known motivation to obscure this history in this giant lost city.
2: Yeah. You know, this has kind of been a rumor that's been floating around, and I've never really seen any actual material on it. So this article was a jam I've been holding on to for a while. But basically, in yeah, 1936, they have a huge group of archaeologists, paleontologists, exploring what they call the Lost City. And it was a giant city in the floodplain, basically, the area that was going to be flooded by Lake Mead. And they were in this rush to excavate and find as much as they could. And what's also interesting is that I covered a very similar story to that in Washington State. And I know you've talked with Randall Carlson, and He's postulated a lot of very interesting things about eastern Washington that correlate with a lot of what I've been saying, but obviously bringing the time frame much closer to our own than 20, 30, 50, 100,000 years or whatever. And that the Grand Coulee Dam, which at the time was the biggest dam in the world, they did the same thing. There were huge cave structures, some of what the people were calling the oldest cave art in America. And they were finding huge habitations and cave systems. And they were in a huge rush to catalog and get everything out before they flooded the dam. Same thing here with Hoover Dam. And again, going through my states and why that's so important, because like you already mentioned, building a bigger picture of things and showing how every single one of my videos now, There are so many correlations from petrifactions to huge mud events to whole cities being buried underground. And this would be a perfect example because what they're saying in this article is that there's a civilization they call the Lost City. They basically say it's the top story and that there are two, if not three layers beneath this city. What they find they're vague on which is obvious because these people are being funded by a lot of these similar Smithsonian-type institutions. But what makes it so great is that, you know, you actually have a full-page article in the 30s, which is a little late because, you know, a lot of these buried ancient ruin articles are hard to find after, you know, the late 20s. But yeah, so this is something that rings true, and I mentioned this, I think, in our last episode when we talked about the damning of California. Yes. And, you know, California is the most damn state in America. And I can't remember what the square footage number is, our square mile area that's been flooded, but it's substantial. And I would postulate that a lot of the Grand Canyon has been covered because, you know, I've talked a lot about in my Arizona article alone, the things they were finding in the Grand Canyon were crazy. You know, an actual city of what they called Egyptian people still alive (laughs) below ground. But yeah, that's a great article and really important in connecting the dots of things I've been kind of mentioning. But having a full article has really helped bring that whole concept to
1: light. Hmm. Yes, I've heard you use the term river management, water management. That seems to be a big aspect of how they've covered things up. I think last time we talked about a pyramid that had been found near Mount Shasta that was buried by building the dam right after it on, near the river. So it just Swallowed it up with a new lake. And it seems like that's happening more and more. When you go state by state, you're finding these things. Just to add a layer to the Hoover Dam, because we probably talked about this years ago, but I haven't gotten to again since, but a little closer to 9-11, people were finding all kinds of esoteric aspects to the Hoover Dam. And there's, I guess symbolic and numerological reasons to suggest that the Twin Towers were built with the intention of taking them down later. Kent Bain has a really interesting book on it, plus the weird synchronicity that they broke ground on the Pentagon on September 11th, 1941. And then this 9-11 event happens exactly 60 years later. Well, you can find a good number of folks who think you can decode similar things about the Hoover Dam. And one of them would be this Strange fallen angel, quote unquote, statue that they have there, or a set of statues. I believe it's two. And there's a big Masonic square and compass design on the ground right there. Anyone can look up Hoover Dam angel statue and you'll be like, yeah, that's a little odd. But the suggestion is that this would be another structure built for later destruction, maybe when they need to simulate some kind of Book of Revelation's great flood kind of thing. But To add one more log to the fire, I think we've all seen that you can fold a $20 bill in a way that looks exactly like the Twin Towers on the day they were hit with smoke going everywhere, as well as a smoking Pentagon. Well, you can also fold a $50 bill in a way that looks just like the Hoover Dam after some kind of attack. So who knows? But the Hoover Dam is a very esoteric structure. And now this added layer that it actually hides the ruins of an ancient city It's just another aspect of the whole thing that I wasn't aware of.
2: Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Again, the buried cultures thing is probably my favorite subject matter when it comes to these articles. And, you know, going a little bit backwards to the petrifaction thing, you know, they found giant lizards, giant seeds. Like, you know, acorns that were 10 times bigger than a normal acorn. Mm. Pine cones that were, again, 10 times bigger than a normal pine cone. They found coconuts that were like three or four times bigger than a normal coconut. And they were turned to quartz in all these different crystals. Mm. And they found forests. I have forests in Oregon, California, Colorado, where they're petrified in place, where the leaves and the fruit are still there. So. We're talking an event that happened in a second, not a volcanic ash covering, because ash and different types of highly mineralized water can petrify things as well. But that takes hundreds of years, if not longer. Hmm. And so when we see a petrified forest with the fruit and the leaves and the seeds still attached, it just tells me that it was something that happened in a flash. And it had to have been an incredibly high plasma event of some kind Mm -hmm. for those types of things to happen. And then you find these standing forests all over and there's petrifactions in Alaska. They found below the snow, again, the tropical relation, you know, and people were talking about the canopy, the vapor canopy in the early 1900s. And they acknowledged that there was a vapor canopy and it did fall. Really? Yep. In the 1900s. So I posted this a long time ago, and, you know, Archaics has really taken it and ran with it. But there's definitely something that was discussed over a 100 years ago and acknowledged. And this goes back to my relation again about a tropical setting where the tropical forest creates its own environment, its own weather system, essentially. You know, the canopy covers so much of the sun. And this would be kind of that age of perpetual light where people, you know, there are so many stories about an age where there wasn't the moon there wasn't the sun and there wasn't the stars and if you have trees that are a thousand or a mile tall you can imagine the canopy that would be created and you know the coal mining coal trees can petrify into coal instantly the coal industry is in my opinion just trees sandstone these softer stones are found in petrified trees so i think When you look at the American Southwest or the Valley of the Gods in Colorado, it's a perfect example. Uh, I posted recently about I've gotten into spelunking (laughs) and I'm finding like the deepest shafts, vertical shafts and cave caving. And many of them look exactly like the inside of a tree.
1: Yes. Now that's something you did send me and I can vouch that. It looks like uh, the rings. You can see, like, if you chop a tree down, you see those rings. Well, those are along the walls in a weird way. And then this hollow cavity, like you say, a vertical chamber. Mm -hmm. And the suggestion is that's the inside of an ancient tree. I suppose people would say, well, mines are underground. But yeah, that's kind of what you're saying is, like, there's been huge burial events. Yep. So something happens, a plasma event. These trees are petrified, turned into minerals, turned into coal, and then layers and layers of ground cover them up. And then we dig it out of the ground and we think it's some process in the earth that is making this mineral, when in reality, it's the remnants of the last round before the last plasma event.
2: Yeah, that's exactly what I think, especially, again, going with the civilization ideas that you mentioned earlier, that When they excavate, they find another civilization and then another civilization and then another one. I have articles all over the Mediterranean, all over the Gulf of Mexico, again, all the way from Alaska, where they, you know, in Alaska, they had that mountain that there was an earthquake of some kind and the mountain washed away and they found a Grecian city in the mountain. Tropical animals, tropical plants all through all of my states now and much closer again to the surface than we're told you know these things aren't buried a thousand feet down under millions of years of ecology they're events that happened sometimes in an instant and then we're covered by following events because you can imagine a plasma event an electrical event when there's a lot of you know again going back to the 1812 new madrid anomalies there was a ton of electrical phenomenon What's the green lights in the sky? I'm spacing the name in Alaska.
1: Oh, the Aurora Borealis.
2: The Aurora was seen all the way in the Gulf from 1811 through 1812. And people talked about hearing thunder and lightning, but not seeing it. And then volcanoes, mountains becoming volcanoes. And these electrical events kick off the volcanic events. I think they're very much related, you know, as above, so below kind of thing. And when you look at a kind of an anode cathode system, you know, lightning shows you how the ground and the sky are connected through the ether, that it would make sense when you have some kind of large event that it would be kicking off several things at once. And the volcanic evidence clearly shows this because not only are we dealing with mud burials, but we're dealing with, you know, huge, huge amounts of lava and ash you know hundreds of feet you know in california we found stone cities under 400 feet lava flows and that continues all the way to the gulf of mexico
1: huh man so we're talking the american southwest well i think a lot of people know that when you talk about the grand canyon we've heard these stories of artifacts and hieroglyphs found there but the story of hieroglyphs and egyptian looking statues spreads out a lot wider. It comes up in a lot of the articles that you cite. And in one video, you allude to what Egypt really was. Well, what are you referring to there? Did Old Kingdom Egypt come after some of these artifact caches in North America rather than before? What do you think Egypt really was? And how do we have Egyptian looking stuff scattered across the US?
2: Yeah. You know, not to say that it was the general consensus, because, again, not all of these people were in contact with each other. You know, no internet, and you had people that were basically coming to the same conclusions at all of these different sites, all from Alaska into the Yucatan. And the resounding opinion that I keep finding is that they are saying that these ruins are far older. Like, verbatim several times that they say... Europe was a wilderness when these structures were built. And, you know, one that sticks out to me was the Emperor Tigrinus article, I think I sent you, about the red-headed giant king of New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And in his tomb, they found, you know, advanced stone battle axes. You know, we're not dealing with the stone-aged people. He was buried with a mum- He was mummified. His shield was covered in crystal mica that was like as reflective as a mirror. And they hypothesized that he was blinding the animals with the shield. And he's quoted as being the oldest redheaded mummy ever found. And that the origins of the Tejan race, the redheaded race, began in the American Southwest. And they even go as far as to say that he was one of the wanderers after the Atlantean destruction. Huh. And... In his tomb, there are drawings of him battling mammoths and saber-toothed tigers and all these giant creatures. And he was entombed by a kind of pygmy race that was completely different from his kind. They were four feet average height, and they had a completely different burial process. They burned the bodies and put the ashes in jars, which is kind of an Asiatic nod. and. Yeah, there's Egyptian artifacts, you know, kind of block Hebrew, Egyptian, even Micmac, which is a, you know, a form of Egyptian pictograph. And they're found, again, from Alaska all the way into, you know, where I'm getting to, to this week of Louisiana. And even these people that, you know, have never met one another, these archaeologists are saying that these ruins show an age far older than anything in Europe and Egypt.
1: Man, (laughs) it is so interesting. And I think what people liked most about the last one we did is going through some of these actual articles, reading them to the people, and we're already 45 minutes in. Give us a couple of good ones just to satisfy the people who were excited about hearing some of these actual articles articles as they were written. I mean, I don't know if we want to take one from each state, but maybe some that are spread out and and really do help make the case that you've been making this whole time.
2: Yeah. Since I know we can edit, I'm going to go ahead and just kind of pull up. I'll start in Alaska and I'll just read one quick highlight. And if you want me to read further, I can do that. Great. And we'll just kind of go down the West Coast and into where I am, if that sounds good with you.
1: Yeah, that sounds great. Let's hit them.
2: Yeah, and another thing that's really important to touch on, too, is just the size of these ruins. You know, I know you've spent some time in these, but for the listeners that aren't familiar with my work or haven't really looked through or haven't seen my new series, we're dealing with ruins that are absolutely gigantic. Not just one, but several of these ruins are miles long, 10 miles long, 30 miles long, with walls and buildings, the largest building ever found ancient building, was found in America and had 1,200 rooms. So we're dealing with an incredibly advanced culture. We're looking at millions of people. You know, we touched on this a little bit when we talked about the canal systems in Arizona, right? And just the amount of labor that would be required, let alone, why would you, you know, there'd have to be a reason to invest that much labor into construction so large, you know, there's thousands of miles. A thousand plus miles of canals, and it's terracottaed, you know, cobblestone canals, and it's incredibly advanced—not just dug-out pits. And we're dealing with, you know, canals supporting millions of people. And this kind of touches on the tropical, you know, these people weren't just living in a 130-degree desert.
1: <laughs> right, right.
2: You know, the desert came after these cultures. And the desert again, sand. Sand is found in huge quantities in petrifaction, you know, silica. And when a tree petrifies, you get this kind of powdery silica. So, again, another correlation for me is that these deserts are areas where huge events, plasma events happened, and probably disintegrated large organic structures, which I can only believe would be trees.
1: Yeah, yeah. It makes me think of that little... Head scratcher. They used to talk about back in the day that the Sahara has a layer of glass under it, and then people used to speculate about an ancient war and a giant ancient atom bomb. Well, that's where we were at the time, trying to reverse engineer what that could have been. But that could be a natural cataclysmic plasma event that causes a layer of glass, like it it melts it down to such a high degree that that's how it appears. And anyone who's driven across the American Southwest, God. It does look like a bomb went off. I mean, it's so empty and just vast. It really makes you aware that when these people talk about a overpopulation problem, no, there's nobody anywhere. I just drove from California to Florida. Outside of the major cities, it's pretty open, and in the American Southwest, it's also pretty dead. Yeah. So, very wild. It 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 could be that west of the Mississippi, used to look a lot more like east of the Mississippi before something happened. Mount Shasta, there's things out there that we know about, and obviously things we don't. Another factor that I just wanted to throw in is when I had Suspicious Observers Ben Davidson on, he brought up this book, Adam and Eve, that Mm -hmm. I'm sure you know about, that talks about rounds of cataclysms. And that book was censored by the CIA. It was made classified, and then they declassified a redacted version of it. But it makes you wonder, why did they care about some book that suggests there were rounds of cataclysms? Why can't that be out there? Very curious thing to censor if it has no merit to it. Yeah. But we're getting away from it. Uh, Yes, hit us with some good stories.
2: So for those listeners, again, that may be familiar with our previous conversation, Now with my new series, Anomalous America, if you do want to follow the articles I reference in my YouTube video, I make a thread on Twitter for every single episode. So you can just search my Twitter, Anomalous America, and you'll have a thread for every episode. So some of what I'm going to highlight, you can go through and look at them for yourself. And I'm just going to read a few highlighted captions from my Alaska episode, just a few real quick paragraphs. And if you want me to extrapolate a little farther, I can read the whole article or a little bit more, but I think I'll just read some captions here, if that's okay.
1: Yeah, I think that'd be best.
2: Okay, so this is from my Alaska episode. And the first one I'm going to read is Tropical Valley, found in Alaska, 1924. That's when this article was published. Prospectors stumble into a broad valley, where mammoth trees, beautiful flowers, and wild game abound subterranean fires, tropical climate, thousands of wildflowers, and game of every kind was seen. So here you still have a remnant of that tropical climate that was kept basically alive because there was volcanic activity under the surface. And it basically kept the snow away. So They're walking through a snowy Alaska and stumble on this kind of Eden, essentially, in the middle of Alaska. And a great part of this article, too, is towards the end they say, this is the second one of these we've found. So it wasn't the only one. So kind of like a window into what Alaska was like before what I would call the fall of the canopy or before the event that's kicked off the Ice Age. Another one that kind of touches on that too is Alaska flowers reveal prehistoric villages. This is published in Montana, 1938. Flowers that boom in Alaska can help explorers detect prehistoric American villages hidden underground. Botanic clue in rediscovering the past, locating hundreds, hundreds of these sites. This article basically says that They can find buried ruins because only certain flowers grow on the top of a buried village. Huh. And they're saying that there are hundreds of these sites. And in my Anomalous America Alaska video, I go on Google Earth and I show you what I think are these hundreds and hundreds of sites. They stretch from Siberia all the way into Alaska. The Aleutians are covered with buried cities. It's pretty crazy.
1: Yeah, that is.
2: Another one I really liked was the Prehistoric Civilization in the Wilds of Alaska, California Publishing, 1906. Coffer dams resting on bedrock, buried several feet below the surface, wooden beads on an iron wire, a city of snow and ice laid out in streets and blocks with mosques and towers, stone-like, in a state of petrifaction. So they find a city that's frozen over in the middle of nowhere, Alaska, with coffer dams buried below the surface, wooden beads on wire, and mosques. These are all quotes, so everything I'm reading is a quote from the article. Mosques and towers, stone light, petrified. And you mentioned this one to me before, a mogul magnet. (laughs) 1902. Do you want me to read this one, or do you want to save it for later?
1: Hell yeah. Let's do this
2: one. I love it. Okay. So I'm going to read the whole thing, if that's okay. Sure. It's not too long. Okay. Mogul Magnet, 1902. After the explosion of the giant powder mills in Alabama, a party of northern capitalists purchased the dividends and determined to erect another factory upon the ill-fated spot. For every year, for 12 years, the mill had exploded. Causing terrific loss and many deaths. Powder mills are interesting. They tie in with the ancient trees and the mining systems, but maybe we'll get into that next. The president of the company requested that I should visit Petersburg in search of a magnet endowed with sufficient power to attract an object of friction at a distance of 50 feet. Fortunately, while prospecting through the north and in Alaska, I formed the acquaintance with Captain Lawrence. Late of the Pacific Steam Whaling Company, who kindly informed me that along the Yukon Delta there existed a peculiar lodestone of wonderful magnetism. To me this information was invaluable, and I accordingly accepted his invitation to join the whalers who were soon to leave on an expedition from Point Barrow. I was a little dubious of this adventure, in spite of the promising report of the Delta for ten years previous to my brother Jim my only surviving relative, sailed from Point Barrow with Bob Lawrence, a brother of our captain. Wild fellows they were, too, and the result was the wreck of the revenue cutter and four whaling vessels. Nine hundred men became castaways and eventually perished from hunger and long exposure on the sterile coast of Greenland. Our voyage was replete with events, thrilling and dangerous, and in my enthusiasm for the whaling business, I quite forgot my lodestone mission. When I was brought to bear upon my mind in a thoroughly disagreeable way, the captain and I were together on the deck, discussing the possibilities of making our return down the Yukon River, thus passing through the gold fields and lodestone ore. When the engineering crew appeared before us and announced that the machinery in the power room refused to work, none of the engineers could explain the mystery. It really seemed inexplicable. Soon the steam died away, but strange the vessel's speed increased and began registering as high as 270 knots an hour. It was indeed a ship at sea. What direction we were going it was impossible to tell, for the compass didn't show. But with a glass I saw at a distance a mountain of dark color, and the secret of our speed was revealed. We were within the precincts of the Great Lodestone Mountain, that both the explorers, Ross and Franklin, believed to be near the pole, surrounded by waters, presumably unnavigable. I knew that when we arrived within a certain distance, the attraction of this mogul magnet would be so powerful that the vessel would be crushed to pieces against it. A hasty examination was made of the vessel Nothing could be done to avoid a disastrous landing, for the hull was of heavy iron of the ordinary build with fastenings of steel. We therefore thought to no more of the vessel's safety but to how to avoid the death shock, which most assuredly would come to us all. Necessity was the mother of invention in this case, an avenue of escape was suggested by a British sailor, who through fear had already suspended himself three feet from the floor, By catching to a rubber strap that hung from the ceiling. Within half an hour, we had a strap each and were dangling in the mid air when the crash came. It was a crash indeed, for one side of the vessel was firmly embedded in the adamant. With the exception of Good, who sustained a slight shock, every man aligned on the mountain bank unhurt. We succeeded in reaching the top of the mountain where millions of gross flew gaily around. I'm going to kind of cut through this here a little bit they found a cozy habitation of cliff dwellers they found a cave where it looked like people had been living hmm. what the dickens exclaimed i can this be a mountain of cliff dwellers even as i said it from an aperture in the rock there limped out a rip van winkle looking fella clothed in a beautiful cloak of duck breasts and with a glorious crown of white locks i thought i must have got a touch of the sun how did he ever get here so they found a man in this cave God. besides he was alone for we could easily see all over the mountain i stared and stared and so did the other men and just as the instant the captain came up from the rear here cap and i said is that a white man or a north pole josh then all of a sudden the white-haired man gave a cry and came hobbling toward me when he got close he fell down in a sort of faint with a spring i was by his side Great powers. It was my brother, Jim. So his brother who died with the 900 other men in that whaling accident, is the man that he found on this island (laughs) covered in duck breasts. As a sound for the disturbance, another figure also clad in seal skin emerged from the cliffs and came running towards us. On seeing the captain, he too gave a cry. Captain, he hollowed, don't you know me, Bob, your brother? And he fell at his kinsman's knees, and rolled over and over, weeping. Ten years ago, Lawrence and I were hurled against this mountain. The ship and the other thirteen men went into the deep. Since then, we two have lived in a second Robinson Crusoe. So, this is the two men they found on this island had been living here for ten years. Hmm. Friday, hoping against hope that some explorers might help us away, but none ever came. And now, you of all people on earth, turn up and find us where you least expected. In a joyful manner, we all set to talking and relating to the main features of our many adventures. Till exhausted from long exposure, we fell asleep. From here, no day or night came. So fantastic. There's <laughs> The sun is always up. Yet the world around us mellowed with the delicate rays of the aurora borealis. The preparations for our return voyage were arduous. From the wreck of our vessel, we secured a sufficient quantity of timbers to build a boat, in which we conveyed ourselves safely to the port of Nuuk. Thence to Uncle Sam's icebox, rich in the knowledge of the great fortune that lay awaiting our return, the mogul magnet of the earth. Crazy story.
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously the synchronicity of finding their own kin 10 years later, but let's not bury the lead, the magnetic mountain. Yeah. The lodestone mountain. I mean, if you look at those old maps that seem to show a giant mountain and then four rivers, four landmasses at the North Pole, a lot of people wonder, what the hell is that? And we have all these Norse legends of the gods living on the mountaintop. And some people say that that map is from the inside of the earth. But either way, you have this story where they start getting pulled in at a rapid clip. And it seems to be a geological anomaly that's pulling them in magnetically pulling the metal of the ships maybe it's also the contoured water dip yeah. in the water at the north pole where you know you can go into the inner earth from the taurus shaped sphere that we live on i guess people are gonna be triggered by the word sphere but very wild story yeah man millions of grouse up there A lot of these North Pole expeditions talk about huge flocks of birds and they seem to be attracted to that area.
2: That move northward. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Man. Yeah, there's a lot of really good little nods that, again, you know, talking to someone like you who's had so many guests on that have mentioned all these little details that you would have to, again, have kind of a good background to see the parts of this article that really do stand out. But you touched on so many little things. And remember, this is 1902. This isn't somebody trying to write some fanciful article in, you know, 2012 or 2020. This is 1902 and all the little things like you just mentioned there, the weather, the Aurora Borealis, that they, many sailors had talked about this magnetic mountain near the pole. That's exactly what they're mentioning, right? Yeah. And, you know, the steam engines that stopped working and yeah. There's just so many little details in this article that really, for me, make it even more believable than just some silly story
1: yeah well i'm always intrigued by the videos you can see made about the magnetic mountain in the middle of the earth and just they go they go in pretty deep about compasses like we just take for granted that compasses work they're all aimed north all the time and there's just some unknown magnetic thing going on well This is that magnetic thing to a lot of people. It's obviously obscured and we're not supposed to know about it. But when you get into the Electric Universe stuff and the Saturn symbolism that seems to be there, and they talk about the perpetual twilight, this kind of tropical global climate that you're referring to, these guys talk about it too. They are still kind of conventional paradigm adjacent. Yeah. So I think they do cast this stuff into a longer timeline. But what if it isn't? You know, this same thing could be true. Just move it up the timeline a bit because they talk about the plasma event. The thing about the symbolism is that it makes a little more sense that we'd see it so pervasive today if the lineage that perpetuated that symbolism was just hundreds of years old or a couple thousand rather than tens of thousands. So, yeah, exactly. I think a lot of this stuff does slide into a cohesive picture when you are open-minded about moving some parts around.
2: A hundred percent. And like we've covered a little bit, again, why we started here in Alaska and going all the way down to the Yucatan, you're dealing with gigantic cities buried underneath another gigantic city. It's like, I would say there's probably 500 years, 400 years, and then it's buried. And then again, that's an estimation, of course. but. We're not dealing with a civilization that's ten thousand years old, then buried by another civilization that's ten thousand years old. And I don't think that for a second. And again, since we're dealing with the tropical things that we just mentioned here in Alaska, that it extends all the way down, that you find the same giant tropical fauna in Alaska as you do in Texas. Hmm. And so that, for me, brings the time frame much much closer to our own. And that these succeeding races, that there's almost kind of like a cyclical clock to these events.
1: Yeah. Well, how many old cultures had clock-like or or circular timekeeping? I mean, it's super common. Wheels within wheels, way more complicated.
2: Exactly. When the Mayan, you know, we mentioned this on our last talk, the Mayan distinctly say that there were four previous ages and they were all killed, destroyed by a cataclysm. Of a different kind. Mm. And for me, that's like the deepest it goes is about four layers. So, like, I keep coming back to that Mayan story, and I, that for me just keeps ringing the most true. Yeah. You know, Mayan, they call themselves the Mayan. You know, it's an illusion, and this reality seems to have kind of how do I say this without triggering anybody? <laughs> it does seem to have a kind of story storyline. Yes. Um, an engineering architectural design to it. That's what I'll say.
1: Yeah. I think it was just a recent episode where we referenced the Terrence McKenna quote that the universe runs on narrative. Mm. Yeah. And that there's like a weird gravity, a s like a something like a gravity around story. And that's why synchronicities work. Like that's why little things pop up in your life that you should pay attention to. It's like there is a force of nature that wells up around events that make a good story. You still have your free will, but we're kind of like there's a current, a river's current pushing us towards good stories in our individual lives that culminate like a tapestry, like like the branches of a tree into one big, great story. Mm. And I think that makes a lot of sense. It's a weird concept, but when you start just looking at the world through that lens, it makes sense to me.
2: Yeah. And, we mentioned a little bit my motorcycle accident, you know, um, out of body experience that came from that. Yeah. And how obsessed I became with kind of the concept of consciousness and what that really was. And the more I dig into these articles and the more I venture down the path of understanding, you know, myself and, you know, how I fit into the whole scheme of humanity, it definitely seems like a storyline, like you kind of suggested there. And, that in one way we're reliving a story that's been told, right? There's nothing new under the sun. And there are dimensions and the details change, but the underlying story is the same.
1: Yeah, I agree. And the next question about the Mayans would be, well, how did they know all this information? And one possibility is that there were some records that survived and they weren't so obsessed with keeping it a secret that they kind of just Pieced what they could together. Yeah. Another possible suggestion is the Akashic record that these cultures explored consciousness a lot more than we do. And you can access certain information there. Even encounters with beings. A lot of times they're trying to show you giant maps that are way out of scale, or they're trying to show you a quick cliff notes version of the human story for some reason. Imagine a culture that was not too worried about shying away from that, that actually pulled on those strings. I mean, who knows how detailed their maps could get. And they always are kind of like woven in with mythology, which is how the Akashic Record tends to be. This is how these encounters tend to be, is like, it's not super straightforward in just left brain logic. It's it's a story, for lack of a better term, symbolic story. So maybe they access that information just firsthand by diving into the cosmic record
2: absolutely yeah and there's a lot of evidence again as i get farther into this series to kind of collaborate all of what you were saying there and that the mayans had a very detailed story of atlantis and you know since our last talk you had old world florida on and that was a fantastic interview and oh thanks you know, I was a little careful about what I said because I just didn't want to cover too much of the material that me and him have been discussing. But, you know, one of the most powerful underlying concepts here was that, that writers in the 1800s and 1900s felt very much that Atlantis existed in the Yucatan, in the Gulf of Mexico. And the Mayans tell a very similar story. And that their chronology and their history come from Atlantis, or remnants of Atlantis. Mm. And, you know, the whole Quetzalcoatl concepts, and that you find these kind of adepts or masters that travel the world, educating these cultures, these remnants, kind of. And that this etheric, Akashic field is all related to that. You know, like the oldest Masonic, Symbols are found in the American Southwest, right? We keep going back to this. The oldest square and compass iconography found is in Arizona and New Mexico and Nevada. Damn. (laughs) And, you know, for me, it's all going back again to the ether and memory. And that the square and compass obviously have material representation, but I think they're just as much related to speech. And, you know, the square and compass is actually a pretty Direct representation of the vocal cords. And when you study, you know, again, going back to the consciousness thing, that you are what you think about, and consciousness has more to do with your mental, your mind. It's more mind, Maya, than it is anything else. And the material world is the true illusion, and the mind is really where consciousness exists. And obviously, we're getting off subject a little bit, but, (laughs) but yeah. And the Mayan talked about this a lot. So yeah, I agree. They were very much tapped into this and the cultures that came after the Maya. You know, there's a lot of mystery around the Mayan. You know, they obviously had a lot of Olmec overlays. You know, Buddha's origins are supposedly from the Yucatan. And I have a lot of evidence of that. And yeah, consciousness and the power of consciousness has faded. And after these events you're dealing with cultures trying to kind of relearn these things. That's where we're at.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Damn. And I think that sounds like a good place to end the first hour. Sure. We wanted to give them more stories. We hit them with Mount Maru. I mean, what more do you want? You got a good one there, man. Before we go, is there anything else to say about latest discoveries or where the work is going next? What's the most recent thing you've stumbled across that's blown your mind?
2: Yeah. Great question. It's been hard, you know, as you can attest to trying to get my own kind of voice and getting the YouTube thing going has been so much more work than I ever imagined. Mm -hmm. And much of my time put into that channel has just been kind of reorganizing everything, if that makes sense, because really, I just had clipped 1000s of things with very little organization evolved, I had no real plan to present it to, you know, an audience. So I've been putting a lot of time into recategorizing everything. And that's been amazing. It's been hard work, but it's been amazing because I'm rereading, you know, you clip something years ago and you've completely forget about it. And that was kind of why I wanted to do things state by state, because it allows me to kind of filter things, you know, and having Twitter and YouTube where I can archive everything and kind of have this navigable story that people can look through even a year or two down the road or more, you know, kind of like listening back to old episodes of yours has been fantastic. You know, anyone listening to this now can go back not just on YouTube but on Twitter and see kind of a catalog state by state. And then I'm, you know, my real interests are stuff that's new and getting that out has been difficult just because so much work goes into Anomalous America. But yeah, radium has been one of my favorites, obviously. I plan on doing a lodestone series discussing religion, post-apocalyptic changes to the human psyche. I think you've heard me mention Julian James. He was a psychiatrist or an author that wrote about the breakdown of the bicameral mind. Have you heard? Mm Are you familiar Mm -hmm. with that term? Yes. Yes. Um, unbelievable book. It's one of my all-time favorites, and that kind of connects a lot of dots that eden or eden as we think of it was really a state of mind and that we were getting auditory hallucinations from what we called god and that we didn't really even have the inner dialogue we didn't have the analog eye that's where my name comes from Hmm. (laughs) and that we were kind of like autonomous robots essentially and that a world was essentially being built before consciousness could be expressed in it and that you had to have the actual material realm kind of started before you could then bring consciousness into the human as we know it. And yeah, that's kind of out there, (laughs) but connecting Julian Jane's theories with the worshiping of the lodestone, because whatever happened, maybe it was a cataclysmic event that through trauma kind of segmented the brain. And created this analog eye, these two different kind of personalities, essentially, that live within us. And that through language, we developed this analog eye, the inner dialogue, essentially, consciousness as we know it. And how that relates to all of these stories and why the newspapers are so powerful in showing that there's kind of a cyclical pattern to things and yeah connecting consciousness the human mind and these reset events is kind of where i'm going next
0: mm. <laughs> which is
2: difficult because again like we've said already you have to have your feet in a lot of puddles for any of that stuff to make sense like i lose people really quick when i start to talk about the bicameral mind
1: yeah what <laughs> I believe it, but I think it's super fascinating. And I do think that's the feedback that I get most often is that when you just give a platform to many, many different researchers, and now we're going on 13 years almost, I try to let each episode stand on its own and an audience that has been with me through the journey, they're the ones who connect the dots. I put the dots out there. And then over time, over a decade of time, you start hearing the same themes again and again and checking the same boxes. And, you know, people reconstruct their own vision of what reality really is. And I love that.
2: Yeah, and being a longtime listener and having so much of that different kind of people with so many different backgrounds, I think that is really important. And, you know, this whole truther thing, whatever you want to call it, it's important to never get stuck in a box. Yes. And I think you can probably relate to that the most, And I've learned probably that the most from listening to your show and all, not only that, but these articles too, is that the most important thing is just to be open. And as soon as you think you have it figured out, you're going to start blocking really wonderful information. Yes. And to just remain open is all I would suggest to people, you know. It's easy to shoot things down and say, no, that's not it, or this is the shape of the earth. All those things are traps to me. There are things you're never going to know about this existence. And again, kind of why I started the last episode talking about my background, you know, with my near death experience and my out of body experience. And that was 17 years ago now, almost. The biggest thing I can walk away with now is that, like I was saying, there are always going to be things about this. Existence, you won't understand or know for certain. And it's never about knowing anything for certain. It's just about being open and, you know, seeking you shall find. Everyone's going to have a different take on every article that I read. Everyone's going to have a different opinion about it. And that's okay. But as long as you're seeking truth and you're on the venture of knowledge and wisdom and kind of transmuting your own life through your footsteps through knowledge and experience, then I think you're on the right
1: path. Mm. Amen to that. There are certainly a lot of worse ways to spend your time than exploring this kind of stuff. So awesome. Well, let's make sure anyone who's stuck around can easily access your work and support this ongoing exploration. There's few people that I would like to see transition to doing it full-time and make a career out of this little thing they've created. Well, give them the links and info that they need to try to support you.
2: Yeah, and thank you, Greg. That really means a lot. I mean, I really look up to you a lot, and I've always been inspired. And, you know, another thing I kind of want to talk about, going through all this stuff, and, you know, it can be kind of a dark road, as you've said several times. Yeah. And what do I do with it? Like the more I realize that the world that we live in is full of abundance, and that the key is really you are what you think about. And if you spend all your time thinking about these darker realms and you have no control and you're just a slave, and all of these things that you're really creating that world for yourself. The key for me, again, this is just my opinion, is knowledge should always be empowering. And knowledge isn't wisdom. It's what you do with it. That's wisdom and how you can make your life better and live a life full of abundance and happiness. And, you know, raise a family and not fear tomorrow, not fear the power structure. And just forge ahead fearlessly and with love. And through these newspapers, I've really fallen in love with a lot of the authors from the 1800s and early 1900s. And I couldn't tell you how many of them were talking about the power of the mind. And the quote that I keep coming back to is, you are what you think about. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just love it. Like, the newspapers have really changed my life, not just from a historical standpoint. And I know a lot of what we talk about can be kind of like, Depressing, and you know, you think about cataclysms and apocalypse, and it's terrifying. (laughs) You know, death is not something to be scared of, and you're here to learn and love and make friends like you, Greg, and know that you live in a world full of abundance and that you can create any life you want for yourself. And that's what I'm trying to do. So, again, I want to say thank you to you, Greg, and yeah, so. My goal is to, you know, kind of shift my life, you know, kind of like you, I've, you know, I've worked for a big company for 17 years of my life and I've loved it. Don't get me wrong. It's provided a lot for me and fed all my kids and a lot of amazing things that come from it, but pivoting my life into a a scenario like yourself where I can be happy doing what I'm doing. And the outreach has been fantastic And your episode, really kickstarted the whole thing. And my YouTube channel is going fantastic. So yeah, I'm on YouTube. It's called The Archivist. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. My handle for YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram is all the same. It's one underscore analog underscore nine. And yeah, so I have a series on YouTube that I do every week called Anomalous America, where I go state by state showing some of my favorite clippings. I also break down each episode by clipping into shorter digestible videos, because as you know, maintaining an audience for two hours or longer can be difficult.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
2: So I do that. I'm two episodes in two small episodes into my radium series. I just started a membership where you're going to get access to some of my Atlantean, you know, ad free Atlantean opinions, books and articles. And I plan on a podcast, but I'm just loading myself up with so much
1: work at the moment that I'm just trying to take it slow. Yes. Well, I appreciate the kind words. It's clearly nobody's passion to be a cog in someone else's machine. No. And so, this membership, where is it through? It's through YouTube.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. YouTube has been fantastic. I know everyone, you know, not everyone has the same experience, obviously. You know, eventually down the road, I'll, as I build an audience, I plan on creating something separate that's on my own terms on my own kind of platform, essentially. But for now, YouTube has been nothing but excellent for me. And so yeah, the memberships on there. And their podcast that I'll be starting. Hopefully by this goes live, I'll have my first episode. The podcast is going to be more of the positive spin on things that we discussed kind of at the end there about what do you do with all this information, you know, like, I feel sometimes like I'm not really helping anybody live a better life, if that makes sense. And I want to have a series where people can kind of get in touch with some of these authors that were presenting information that helped me change my mental outlook on life. And yeah, so my podcast series will be called The Kingdom of Heaven. And I'll kind of be translating the Bible as kind of a metamorphic
1: alchemical self-help book (laughs) damn lofty (laughs) lofty Uh, but you're the man to do it i'm sure but i would say this is another instant classic if my intuition is correct i really enjoyed it and i hope we can keep doing this every so often because there seems to be no shortage of great stuff to cover and you're not short on content and your work ethic seems to be as great as it needs to be to to really make that transition. Uh so yeah, I wish you the best of luck. I hope we get a lot of good feedback again. But until next time, take care, man, and keep at it.
2: Thank you so much, Greg. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun.
1: Well, hallelujah, people. Another great interview with analog. Really wild stuff. In fact, the stuff about the giant trees and the titans and rocks is some of the wildest material out there. It's interesting to see him folding some of that in. There was a point in the interview where I said devil's backbone, but really it's the devil's tower in Wyoming that is usually presented as Exhibit A for the giant ancient trees argument. It might be the only thing that he talks about where I say, hmm, I don't know. Yes, a lot of these structures do look like ancient trees or ancient tree trunks or stumps. I wouldn't argue that. And there's a lot of mythology out there about a great tree, similar to Avatar. And it's a theme that seems deeply embedded in the world mind. But I just don't know enough about petrifaction to even weigh in. Can a petrified tree be made to seem indistinguishable from rock? Well, there is that story about the U.S. gifting the Dutch National Museum a moon rock and they tested it and it turned out to be petrified wood, which tells us they're similar enough to try to pull a fast one, but different enough to be detected when you get skeptical. Who knows, but the idea that we were once in a perpetual twilight plasma envelope and this was the golden age and we were in Saturn's plasma sheath and abundance was everywhere and everything was like the damn Amazon. I like that idea. And I put it in the mix as an idea I can entertain. But I don't really need the Devil's Tower to be a tree for that. Could cavities in the earth be ancient root structures and these mineral deposits be from them? (laughs) That's a unique take that I haven't heard many other places. There was that point, man, so much stuff talked about today, but there was a point where he said something about a petrified forest having trees that were, I think, 60% copper. I mean, that's a head-scratcher right there. I guess it really just gets down to how immutable you think the material world is. Or do you think material can be more fluid when exposed to something as extreme as a plasma event? Almost like nature's alchemy process or something. But last time we talked about the giant people described in many, many old newspaper articles. And today we got more into the giant stuff, the produce, the wheat, the coconuts, beasts of exceptional size. It's not like we're given a height and weight on a lot of that stuff. So how giant is giant? If you have a coconut bigger than a basketball, how big was the tree? And is radium the key? Man, that's got to be the most fascinating part of all of this. I really like the idea of damming up rivers to hide the old world stuff, too. We heard several examples of that, including the Hoover Dam. And that's a real thing. Even mainstream vanilla sources will mention the lost city washed out by the Hoover Dam. Totally new to me, though. And I would guess I'm not alone. And the Mount Meru story was a fun one, too. I'm glad we could squeeze that into the first hour. But man, did we go hard into radium in the second hour, and it's some of my favorite material a guest has talked about in a while. If you only listen to the free first hour, you're always going to be halfway out of the loop. It's just the nature of the game. I give you that free first hour to try to prove my worth and get the guests in front of the biggest chunk of people I can. But the plus hour is where I make my living and where it always gets deeper and more interesting. Today was something special, though. Pretty much an hour of analog spit and fire about radium and how it ties into a lot of different things, its applications. It was just great. We mentioned things like the mummy wheat story, the Shriners, Salt Lake and Solomon's Temple, oranges, longevity, and the Mayan sacred fruit. Radium Alchemy and the Oracle of Delphi, Apergy Radium and the Inner Earth. Now, that process, for the people who did hear the full show, when I read that section, it sounded a lot like the Ormus story or the Ormus protocols from the episode we did a couple of years ago. We also talked about the secret side goal of the Titanic sinking. The importance of cypress trees, Phoenicians, Magi, and magnetism. And we got into some added context for the epic tale that took up the whole Plus show last time. And the great thing about my pitch for signing up for Plus is that I can't really lie to you because the Plus people are also hearing this. So if I say, man, that second hour was great. And all my paid members are hearing me and they're like, eh, it was okay, but nothing exceptional. Then I'm caught. But I think it's safe to say that this one was something special. Again, I don't ask for much. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com. It's a couple of clicks, or you can go through Patreon, eight bucks a month for five two-hour shows a month. Today was a second hour that I think any THC fan would enjoy, but... You can always just go to Analog's channel as well because he does talk about it all there too. And there is one thing I was going to add to this stack. You know, sometimes when you're listening to Analog go over all these old newspaper articles, they'll talk about things like the importance of deep rhythmic breathing and just kind of this human optimization stuff. Sometimes it slips in. And I was going to mention this, but we ran out of time, but this thing we might call the sunglass conspiracy. So a lot of people have dug into it and shown that skin cancer rates went up after the invention of sunscreen, and it's the blocking of sunlight and covering our skin in these chemicals that is hurting us. Fair enough, but I don't think many of us have extended that line of thinking to sunglasses and our eyes. I can think of a couple of times in the past where it has come up on THC in interviews, but this is a quote that Analog gave from Dr. Gil Headley, who is actually alive and might be a future THC guest, but he says, our entire blood supply flows through our bodies and through our eyeballs about every two hours, and that exposes our blood to the ultraviolet frequencies and their cleansing properties and certainly has an important immune function, and is important for our health. We should all admit ourselves to the sunlight at least two hours a day to make sure we go through that purification process. I don't know, that just resonated with me as pretty interesting. It makes logical sense. I mean, doesn't the sun's rays penetrate our skin as well? I'm sure we get a little bit there, but maybe it's most effective through the eyes. And so you need to be out in the open, in the sunlight, without shields over your eyes for a natural process to take place. Hmm. I don't know. I couldn't really find anywhere to shoehorn that into the interview, but I had it in my notes and I just wanted to throw it out to you now. But in higher side news, not a whole lot going on. I'm still just getting caught up and trying to enjoy the new life down here. I also just had a couple of orders, which reminded me that I should mention the THC merch more often, which Plus members do get a discount on. But we got t-shirt designs for so many of the major THC themes, many of which I am quite proud of. Not that I'm the artist, but they're usually artists' renditions of my ideas but a lot of them are as good as I could ask for. And we got coffee mugs, pillows, et cetera, et cetera. I never really mentioned the merch store, but I probably should once in a while. The margins just aren't great for me. And I really started it just to have my own t-shirts made. But yes, you can buy them too. And again, plus members get a discount code when they sign up. So do everything in the right order. But super happy with this one. I hope to check in with Analog every six months or so and keep it a thing because he's onto some really unique threads, and I'm all about it. I look forward to that Radium series actually coming out in all its glory. And as for the upcoming meetup events going on out there in the world, let's look at the calendar. Next on the list would be June 8th. There is the LA Truthers meetup at the Flame International Restaurant. June 10th, the Scotland UK meetup. Don't let our man down there. Also, June 10th, the Rock Rest Lounge in Denver is having an event. Actually, it says Denver gets higher, but it's in Golden, Colorado. Locals know. June 17th, Stamford, Connecticut. June 20th, Nashville, Tennessee. June 21st, the Pork Fest meetup in Lancaster, New Hampshire. And there's a couple popping up for July, but we will leave those for later in the month. But that's the events we have on the calendar right now. Show up, meet each other, or hop on the calendar and make an event if you feel like you can't find people on your page, because they are out there and this is a good way to find them. But that's it for me. Big thanks to Analog. He really brings it, doesn't he? Check out his YouTube channel, The Archivist. Hit him up on Twitter. Tell him thanks and follow along because he is sharing all of these articles on Twitter almost every day. He's great at what he does. I'm lucky to have him. But I've done my part. Your move, history hiders, last round erasers, and timeline tamperers.
3: Your fucking Lucid dreams are so vivid Cause you go to bed at 7 And your brain comes alive Cause you hate your 9 to 5 You wake up with a dread And make sure your cats are fed Did your brain talk to a ghost Who moved your coffee and your toast As you listen to the Higher Side Chats you get to your desk And your boss says it's a mess And your soul slowly grows To a place where nothing grows When you think he's not around You insert a SETI sound The OM says turn it down And you say it's just the higher side chats Oh, do you think you'd be invited To Bohemia Grove To a Bilderberg club Oh, do you think you'd be invited By a Rothschild to a party on a submarine Diving down to the center of the earth to the Marianas Trench Your teeth begin to clench from the sulfurous stench The mask you're given doesn't fit Cause you're not one of them Starting today you'll make plans to get away There's no one to hold you down And the what-ifs start to drown Then you wake to the glare Of a cold fluorescent stare And the light winks at you Cause its life is almost through But it's holding on to quit time just like you It's time for the High Side Chats